Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 110 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday afternoon. It's February 12th. Now I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Pitchers and catchers reported today. It has begun. It has uh, begun. Is this going to be the Mets year, Steve? No. But it'll be a year. It'll be a year. Listen, a year. listen, after the year the Giants had and the Knicks are having, I mean, the Mets would actually have to underperform even their underperforming expectations for it to be like, you know, not even worth watching. Well, we will not do a full Mets or Mm-mm. MLB preview since, yet, since it's, just, coming. I mean, it's well, coming. Which, I mean, there's a whole separate conversation about how it's like the, you could form a, like probably the best team in the majors right now. Just by unsigned free agents, yes. which is not usually where we are on February 12th. So who knows what may shake up. We may need to wait on any previews in light of that. Um, okay, well, we do have a lot of national security law news to talk about, and here's a quick run of the show. We're going to start off at the top of the judicial heap with the Supreme Court set of uh, topics. In particular, we'll have a little bit more detail on Larrabee, which involves the uh, the involuntary recall of retired military officers to or military members to uh, face court-martial. And also Hamidullin, which we talked about last yeah, week. Yeah, both of which are on the conference list for this exactly. Friday. So these are both cases where they're seeking cert. Who knows what will happen? Uh, Hamidullin is one that involves uh, eligibility for combatants' privilege to immunize a participant in hostilities from charges for things other than war crimes. In other words, for murder, you know, battery assault. And it's in the reading thing. for my national security class for tomorrow. So if oh, you is? are actually following the syllabus instructions and listening to the podcast, this oh. will be a good preview of tomorrow's class. Oh, I so hope some of your students are in there because this way I get to have my hands on your students here. <laughs> this is great. All right. Um, an issue near and dear to my heart. That that topic is going to lead naturally to something that keeps getting uh, whispered about in the news and we've talked about on this show a lot. What is going to happen to those Islamic State detainees who are held by SDF, uh, by Kurdish forces, uh, and who are not likely to remain in that custody for all that long? And are any of them maybe going to end up at Guantanamo? Uh, we keep hearing rumblings about mm-hmm. that. Uh, that in turn will lead us to a uh, extradition case, or in this case, a non-extradition. You had a guy who was in Germany, just completed his sentence in a terrorism-related matter. Uh, the United States uh, unsealed an indictment in uh, Southern District of New York and asked for him, and he ended up in Turkey instead. We'll talk about what's at stake and why this happened, and then that will lead to a quick couple of notes on some National Security Division uh, uh, events to to arrest in, a, in what appears very much to be a related case. And then we'll close out something very different, this remarkable story about Project Raven, uh, a, a situation in which the United Arab Emirates, in the process of standing up a SIGINT agency over the past, I guess, seven years now, uh, had contracted with originally an American company to bring in American personnel, former NSA employees, uh, to help them figure out how to do this business with a particular emphasis on cyber means of conducting surveillance. And uh, this story broke uh, via Reuters, and it's a fascinating story about just what it was that was going on. It raises some interesting legal and policy issues. And this is something I, Steve, I wrote a piece on Lawfare yeah, uh, on Monday. A must read. Um, I, I'm interested, you know, you never know. You write these pieces for Lawfare Just Security, and they go out there, and sometimes <laughs> you think they're like the greatest piece ever, and it's crickets, no one particularly cares. Uh, and then something like this ends up, you know, getting some mileage, and, and you don't always know which ones are going to be that way. Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting. I, you and I have had this discussion before. You know, I, others, others, and I have had this this discussion about like, what are our goals for impact, right? Like, you know, when for, when we're thinking about the the influence we're trying to have, especially with our more academic or at least less headline driven writings, who's our audience? And it's right. not it's not, I think, in any sense, an, a, a, a metric. Of absolute numbers, right? Like I, you know, I. No, that's right. If if I knew that like things I'm writing and saying are being read by a subset of like 35 or 40 people, I'd be very happy. Yeah, you know, that was I think for all of the legal blogs, at least at least for a lot of us, that's sort of the the mindset, right? We're trying to reach the people who actually have direct uh, responsibility for whether it's litigating or counseling direct responsibility for impacting these issues. Um, I think for the podcast, you know, we're definitely aiming broad. I mean, obviously, we hope that when we talk about topics, some of the people actually involved in the cases or matters uh, are hearing and getting some benefit from it. But um, I perceive this much more in the pedagogical sphere of trying to just help people develop knowledge and appreciation for the broader field. I think that's right. I'll just say, just to lay down a marker for it, I think might be a fun future conversation, perhaps if we do an AMA show. Um, 
I do think that there's an interesting conversation that the legal academy is overdue in having um, about scholarly impact and about exactly yeah. what kind of impact we value um, and how we measure it and whether the conventional model of publishing these long-form, you know, year-long sort of project law review articles is actually an accurate reflection of what we really want law professors to be accomplishing these days. That'd be a really good, uh, not even a frivolity topic, that's just a good topic. Yeah. All right, well, speaking of things that are frivolous, let's talk about the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's, there's, we've talked about Larrabee a little bit. Give me the breakdown. Um, this is your case. This is my case. What is going on at Larrabee, um, and what's the best argument against you? What's the... <laughs> so... Um, the, the Supreme Court has this remarkable series of six cases from the 1950s where the court showed a rem, uh, uh, an unusual and never since replicated degree of interest in what is often shorthanded as personal jurisdiction in the military, but is sort of best understood as just who is properly subject to being court-martialed. Um, I think there's general agreement that active duty service members are sort of the core. Yes, um, one would think. And indeed, I mean, when we talk about examples of federal courts outside of Article Three, I mean, courts martial, although they weren't really courts as we think of them today, courts martial existed at the founding. I mean, the yeah. the, the, the you know the the Continental Army had courts martial. Um, but Congress, after World War II, had conferred military jurisdiction much more broadly. So, for example, there was power to try the civilian dependents of service members overseas. There was at least statutory authority to try civilian contractors working for the government. Um, and the Supreme Court has this run of cases where they basically say, as a constitutional matter, no, at least, or you know, certainly during peacetime, although there's a lot in the cases to suggest even during wartime, um, it is not constitutional for Congress to authorize the trial by court-martial of civilians, of those who just aren't part of the land and naval forces. Is it fair to say this comes about in the 50s precisely because in the aftermath of World War II, for the first time with maybe some complicated caveats uh, relating to sort of Roosevelt and the Spanish-American War and its aftermath. For the first time, we have sustained large footprint U.S. overseas deployments of the military, including garrison-type situations in which uh, you're going to have lots of civilians around, lots of contractors and all sorts of people who are integrally, integrally involved in the overseas American military presence uh, with an uncertain question as to how else could American law be enforced? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a huge part of it. And I think in a related part of that is Congress responding to those pressures, which I think actually start during World War II. Um, but Congress sort of formalizing what had been a sort of rough and ready practice on the battlefield during World War II in the UCMJ, which is, you know, which is an act in 1950, goes into effect in 1951. Um, and so one of the big cases here is a case called Toth, um, where the court says that the military can't try even a former service member for an offense committed while on active duty because he had been discharged, because he had severed all connections with the military. Toth, is that the guy that James Earl Jones plays in Conan? <laughs> well played. Um, different guy. Yeah, I uh, might have the lettering reversed there. Um, and I think Toth was a white guy. But other than that, you know. Um, I thought Toth- not in Conan, the the actual Toth in the case. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, Robert Robert or William, All I think right. Robert. This Toth- calls for a future frivolity where we review the, the two Conan movies, or Ooh. just James Earl Jones because oh. oh he's the man. Done. Um, Admiral Greer, among other things, right? So um, <laughs> anyway, Toth Toth slams the door on trying former I service members. I can't believe you worked in a uh, what, what is a among other things a Hunt for Red October reference. Thank you very much. Um, so t- anyway, I, I'm, I'm sort of dragging this out much longer than I should. Um, what Toth didn't settle, and what's been an open question that the Supreme Court has never resolved, is what about service members who are on active duty and then take retired status. Um, And retired status is something that's existed in one way or the other since 1861. Um, And the idea is that if you, you know, serve long enough and don't get into trouble, um, that you can go onto the retired list. And that by being on the retired list, like one of one or both of two things will be true, right? One, you know, you'll be entitled to some form of a pension. And two, you'll be there if we need you. Um, right for recall, yeah. for you know redeployment, for a, your expertise. A form of reserve. A form of reserve. Okay. Um, and since the retired list was created, um, the assumption has been that retired service members, unlike discharged former service members, are subject to court martial. That assumption has never been tested by the Supreme Just Court. Just to clarify, subject yeah. to court martial for activities 
post-retirement. I mean, without without any sort of real sort of you know fighting at the margins about when the offense has to occur, because the theory is, I mean, the theory is that retiring doesn't separate you, and so the retirement is not of jurisdictional implications if you're still part of the land and naval forces. Interesting. All right, um, the Supreme Court never weighs in on whether that's okay. Like they suggest in cryptic dicta in an 1882 case called Tyler, that that's fine, but that's, you know, it wasn't the issue in Tyler. Um, Fast forward all the way to the present, and there are a couple of things that have changed. The first thing that has changed is thanks to a series of Supreme Court tax cases, it's now clear that the pay that military retirees are receiving is not a form of deferred, is not current compensation. Um, but really is a pension, right? It's oh. it's deferred compensation for prior service. Which makes them look less like current employees. Exactly right. Um, and then second, you also have the these cases from after World War II where the Supreme Court doesn't allow courts martial to exercise jurisdiction over civilian employees, even though the government says, well, look, we're paying them to be to play this role. The court says pay is not enough. So with that, the question becomes, if pay is not enough, What's the argument for trying them? Um, in our case, and in a companion case called Dinger, the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeal said, yes, all of this is true. The rationale has been eroded. We have to start from first principles. And as a matter of first principles, the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeal said, um, there's military jurisdiction here because he's subject to future recall. Basically, that it's like just it's like reservists. Uh, yeah, although I mean, so reservists are different. I mean, so reservists can only be tried by court martial today, at least as a matter of statute, for offenses committed while they are on active duty or doing inactive duty training. So, so retirees are actually broader. Like, there's actually, yeah, that, I'm, I'm kind of my my mouth is agape. The listeners can't. Well, hear the, that. I mean, so the government. I'm a little surprised to hear that the government's defense of this awkwardness that reservists, who by the way are infinitely more likely to be deployed, of course, yeah, right, yeah, than no, retirees. Right. Um, that that's just a policy choice Congress made. And it's like, well, okay, but it's a deeply irrational one. Well, it's, it's a policy choice, but then it raises questions. What's the background assumption against which the uh, so policy choice The is reality made? is, right, con- so Congress made that policy choice for reservists, I think, reflect because they understood that, like, it would be bad if reservists were subject to military jurisdiction in perpetuity for any offense. Congress never has had that conversation about retirees because this doesn't come up as often. doesn't come up, right. There's, Congress has made no choice here. Or at least Congress hasn't revisited the choice it made before all of those Supreme Court cases from the 1950s, yeah, yeah. right? And before Toth, especially. Okay, so the our, um, Larrabee is a uh, was retired after his 20 years as a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps. Um, after his retirement, he basically just stayed in his last duty station, which was Iwakuni, Japan, and opened up two private bars. Um, and he got in trouble. Smart dude. Well, yeah. Um, after uh, so. <sighs> He got in trouble for, uh, after a night of drinking, he sexually assaulted um, one of the bartenders at one of his bars. And just to be clear, this is not on base. It's not on base. It's off base. It's off duty, right? It's a sec- It's not a military offense. It's sex- a sexual assault, which I don't mean to say by any means is to diminish the weight or gravity of the charge. Obviously. But it's a civilian offense. The only connection to the military, besides the fact that it's like close to a military base, is that the spouse of the victim... Um, who's only identified by her initials in court documents, he was a service member, okay. but not the victim herself. Yeah, so it's, it's a thoroughly civilian fact pattern, a, but for his retired status. And the government doesn't argue otherwise. I mean, the government has not said that like this is actually a military offense. The government just says there's no requirement that there be any kind of military connection. So we um, petitioned for cert. Um, the government responded um, in December or early January, and, and the government's response um, basically makes two arguments. The first is it argues that the Supreme Court doesn't even have jurisdiction um, because the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, CAF, although it granted review in our case, it didn't grant review on this specific issue. It didn't grant review on the jurisdiction question. It granted review on a different issue. And the government reads the relevant statute as limiting the Supreme Court's jurisdiction to the specific issues CAF chooses to decide. We think we have some pretty good arguments for why that's fault, why that's wrong, but at the very least, it's 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 worth it's, it's worth it for the Supreme Court to resolve that issue, since that goes a long way toward either opening the door or closing the door on direct review of CAF. Right. So that's the jurisdictional issue. On the merits, I mean, the government's brief is interesting in that it doesn't actually endorse the decision below. It doesn't say yes. This future recall theory um, is the is the key. It actually runs away from that. It says, well, wait a second. No, it can't just be that the mere specter of being called to active duty at some point in the future is enough for military jurisdiction, the government really relies heavily back on pay. Um, and on the idea that uh, someone like Larrabee, at the end of his 20, 
chooses to go into the Fleet Marine Corps Reserve and to receive a pension as opposed to choosing a discharge. And that the consequence, so, so sort of a combination so you take of your pay and consent. Um, oh. Right, that he's almost consenting to military jurisdiction by transferring to the Wait, Fleet he Marine Corps Reserve. Wait, he doesn't get the pension if he, uh, if he, dis- if he discharges? He, he doesn't get his pension, if he, right? Yeah. So the question is, like, is that really enough of a basis? Is the fact that you are sort of taking a pension Right, reason enough to say that you can therefore be tried by the military for any offense you commit for the rest of your life. So, how roughly how often do people actually get in this situation where they are they're retired, they're not yeah. being recalled in, until this thing happens right. based on something that's otherwise a civilian offense? Yeah, I mean, so it's hard to the data is not public. Um, we could find you know through the Navy Marine Corps defense lawyers, we came up with eight examples in the last five years. Um, of okay. cases like this, and that's in one branch. So it's at least a uh, you know a few times a year. Probably. Uh, I say a couple times a year, and and if, and if you assume that it's sort of somehow proportional to the size of the branches, there are probably more army cases. Army. Yeah. Well, and and so now this may be a more recent trend, but the other thing that looms large here is what's been the practice, the settled practice over time. So I would think the biggest obstacle mm-hmm. you've got is just the sheer fact it's just been done this way yep. a really long time. Yep. And at a certain point, absent congressional engagement. There's like acquiescence. Yeah, there's there's a degree, right? The, the practical precedent. I, I think that's totally right. I mean, I think the, 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 what the, the reason why I think we have a compelling argument for cert now um, is because the Navy Marine Corps Court of Appeals' decision in Dinger, which is the companion case, was explicit that they thought that those previous cases had seen their analytical foundations washed away. Um, and indeed, the, the NMCCA literally says, we're deciding as a matter of first principles. And so even though there's this long history, the history is to some degree unstable, um, right? And if the NMCCA is right that you have to decide this as a matter of first principles, it seems to us that given that the Supreme Court has always played this powerful role in supervising and policing um, military jurisdiction over non-active duty service members, it should do the same thing here, right? That this is all part of why we think, obviously we think that there shouldn't be jurisdiction, but at the very least, we think that if there's going to be military jurisdiction over retired service members in perpetuity, um, it should be for the Supreme Court and not just the you know lower military courts to say so. Is there, an, is there a window here for a Supreme Court intervention that would be uh, Congress forcing, that would get the legislation, uh, get legislative movement, which seems to me like what we really want here is a a policy consideration and then lawmaking. To yeah, I mean, the I, I guess the, you know, I think as just a matter of first principles that the most compelling thing to do is to analogize retirees to reservists um, and to basically treat retiree jurisdiction the same way where if a retiree is recalled or if they are somehow, you know, engaged in military activities as a retiree, that military jurisdiction can attach to those activities in the same way it attaches to a reservist. As a lawmaker, that's the thing I would do. Yeah. Um, and as a cert grantor, I'd think, yeah, you're, you're right that we should probably engage on this and probably with an eye towards forcing that, that dialogue. I'm not sure I would rule for you on the merits. Yeah. But, uh, but I do think it's cert-worthy, and I do think Congress <laughs> should just resolve it anyways. Well, I mean, I, Congress could make this a lot. I mean, so here's the thing. If Congress did that, then, then we'd win because in our case, there's no military connection. Um, and oh, yeah, so, yeah. right, so part of why I think this is an especially compelling case for cert is because even if you're not sure where the line ought to be, it seems to me that unless you think retired service members, of which there are 2 million, I mean, there are yeah. almost twice as many retirees today as there are active duty service members, um, unless you're comfortable with the idea that they can be tried in perpetuity by the military for anything, um, I don't know where the line is short of that where we'd be on the wrong side of it. So, so in the search for a competing policy consideration, what about the risk of creating a vacuum? This guy was in Japan. This is an Okinawa deal. Yeah. Um, wh- who would have prosecuted yeah. if not the court-martial? Is, would there have been any form of American overseas extra, uh, extraterritorial jurisdiction for this? So, um, or would it have to fall to the Japanese authorities who maybe don't care about an American-on-American violence? So I think it would be, it would be a stretch under MIJA. Um, there, there are holes in the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act. Um, I think, first of all, I think Japan would have had jurisdiction. Yeah, they, they would have, right? but maybe they don't care. Maybe they don't care. Um, I will say, I mean, I was, I was, this was an issue in all of the 1950s cases, right? The government would routinely say, if you don't find military right. jurisdiction, there will be no place for these guys to be tried. They'll get away with murder. Um, and the Supreme Court says over and over again, that's not our problem, right? So, <laughs> um, so in one sense, that's my reaction. In other sense, the government didn't raise this issue in their brief in opposition to cert. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, the government's brief in opposition to cert here is actually very interesting in what it doesn't say. So it yeah. doesn't try to argue that there was a military connection. It doesn't try to argue that, like, there's an interorum problem where if you don't allow for his military trial – 
we, you know, the court would be incentivizing all kinds of yeah. bad activity. Doesn't make any of those arguments, um, which to me is a pretty powerful suggestion that the government didn't believe that that's true, right? That that they actually thought there were. They don't want to foreclose the possibility that they actually do have mechanisms for prosecuting these guys under U.S. law. Yeah. That, okay. So that's right. They probably felt like, look, we can't go on paper because what if we need to try to make that claim? That's right. So, but they, but they might deep down actually feel that way. Well, I do wonder. I mean, if the court grants cert, right? I still, I, I think it will be interesting to see if the government um, pushes, for example, more aggressively on this consent idea that you can consent your way into a court martial, um, which I think would be a really interesting argument. Justice Thomas alluded to that in his solo concurrence in the Ortiz case, but yeah. no other justice has ever suggested that that's how this works. Um, indeed, Justice Kavanaugh has written about this in the context of the military commissions. So this has come out the other way. Yeah, yeah. Um, that there that you can't forfeit or waive, like you can't forfeit jurisdictional objections to a military commission. So, I, it's if they grant sir, I think the government's going to have some interesting. The, the government was able to avoid saying some things in the brief in opposition that I think if the if sir is granted, they're going to have to take a stronger position uh, on. You you've certainly convinced me that Larrabee's interesting, and <laughs> uh, you've made, you've made me interested in this military Not jurisdiction right. question. Oh well. Uh, you're close, but I mean, and, and it, I mean, it's interesting because there's the Supreme Court hasn't had a major, major military jurisdiction case since 1987. Yeah, um, this Lorio case. So it's just you know, it's time. Is it time? <laughs> it's time. Um, all right. So anyway, we'll see. Um, right. Before we get to Hamadullah, I do yeah. want to. Uh, while I'm on my little soapbox, I do want to say a quick word about a decision the court handed down last Thursday um, that I think has gotten deservedly a lot of attention. So this was a death penalty case. It's not really our brief except for one thing about it. the mom case? Yeah. Okay, so I, I am not steeped in what went on here, but I have seen there's a lot of... Outrage. A lot of talk. Yes. Well, there's 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 outrage and there's support, right? So uh, there's not there's not a lot wait, of support. No one supports it. Uh, there's I have right. not seen. Lay it out for me because I don't real... actually know what the precise controversy is. So short short version. Dominique Ray, not a good guy, convicted of murder, sentenced to death. No one is sort of disputing at this point. Okay. No one was disputing the validity of the conviction or of the death sentence. Okay. The issue was simply the mechani- the the sort of procedures surrounding the actual execution. Um, Alabama law by statute says uh, death row inmates are entitled to have members, you know, religious clergy mm-hmm. of their choice. But the Alabama Department of Corrections policy implementing that statute says the clergy has to be employed by the state um, or otherwise gone through various clearances. And for Mr. Ray, the only qualifying clergy person was a Christian preacher, uh, a priest. This uh, was this guy was Muslim and he wanted an imam. He wanted an imam in the in the Alabama uh, uh, pool of employees Did who not, have religious functions includes none. Uh, apparently, includes none, or at least those who were in a position to be with him in the execution chamber. Oh, I see. So there may have been a few people, but like they're they're committed elsewhere. So he was told basically um, about two weeks before the execution that the only religious officiant who could be in the chamber with him was a Christian priest. Um, and so his lawyers um, proceeded to seek a stay of his execution, which was scheduled for last Thursday, um, on the ground that this raised serious questions under Real Yupa, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of 2000, um, and the free exercise, cl- uh, the free exercise and establishment clauses. Um, that, in a sense, the court, uh, the Alabama policy was clearly preferring a particular religious denomination by only making available a clergy person of one faith to those on death row. I, they would say, like, we're, we didn't intend for it to be this person. It's just, this is who we've got. And the, but, the, but the problem that I hear when I see the fact pattern described that way is, well, why don't they just put it off for a week? Yes. Or put it off for a day? Indeed. And why next morning, four and, hours later. And see if you can, like, you know, see if his like, imam can go right. through the proper clearance. Well, then you have to be his, just an imam. I'm sure they've got one somewhere in their midst. Like, one would when hope. is he available? So this was the fight. Um, so the district court denies a stay on the ground that um, Mr. Ray had waited too long in raising this claim. So um, procedural default, independent of the merits of Unclean hands, yada, yada, about. right? Okay. Stays are inherently discretionary, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Um, the 11th Circuit, which I just should, we should be clear, is not exactly a progressive appeals court, um, writes this like 28-page unanimous panel opinion reversing the district court and staying the execution, a lot of which is a discussion of the timing and the fact that there's no way Ray could have been aware, reasonably aware, that he was not going to be able to bring his imam into the execution chamber with him um, or that he would have an establishment clause claim until he was actually told, which was January 23rd, so five days before he filed. 
Um, and right. when, when was the lower court saying he should have? The district court was saying that once the execution date was set, right, he should have been, as a death row inmate, he should have been familiar with what the policies were for death row executions. But he couldn't know who was available. Well, not only that, but the Alabama Department of Corrections actually doesn't publicize its policies. And so there's a lot of problems with the yeah, district court's it, it analysis. Didn't, it didn't, yeah, that didn't sound, so it sounds like the 11th Circuit had it right? I, I, I think so. But more importantly, so, the, so this comes to the Supreme Court not in the typical posture. Most, like, last-minute stay applications and death penalty cases are coming from the inmate. This is coming from the state of Alabama seeking to lift the stay that the Al- that the 11th Circuit had put on the execution. And the Supreme Court, late Thursday night, by a 5-4 to four vote, lifts the stay. Um, and just there's a cryptic one-paragraph unsigned um, sort of note that basically suggests that the reason why they were lifting the stay was the delay, um, was that even though the execution date was um, set on November or whatever, that Ray had waited till January 28th to file this claim. But he couldn't yes. have known Justice Kagan, Justice Kagan tears this So Justice Kagan writes a very, for her, a very angry, I mean, she's not usually one of the more emotional writers on the court. Um, she says this is profoundly wrong, and she writes basically a, a pretty angry three-and-a-half-page dissent. Um, and frankly, I mean, I don't think her dissent's nearly as, I mean, I think her dissent's compelling. I don't think it's nearly as compelling as the 11th Circuit opinion, which to me is unanswerable. Well, it just seems like this is not a, this doesn't sound like a hard problem. No. Right? The guy, un, under the given law, he is entitled to religious guidance, and it doesn't matter what his particular religion is. I would hope that if it was a if it was a, a Christian inmate that he'd be able to access the, the, the particular type of minister or priest that he, he or she wanted, but that he couldn't have known until late January this should, that, this should that have been a no-brainer. This procedural this just, problem had arisen. This should have been a no-brainer. And the problem is, is that like I don't impute malice to the five justices in the majority. Like I don't think this is a case where they are saying we care less about Islam than we care about right. Catholicism or other. No, this, Christianity. this smacks more of general resistance to last-minute litigation surrounding executions. And that's perhaps? fine, except, except that right, the status quo when the case comes to them is that there's already a stay. Right. Yeah. No, th- that's a weird one. I feel like there must be some element or angle to the procedural sequence of events that I'm missing. I don't. Because as you described yeah. it to me, it didn't sound like a hard case, nor one that requires some big intervention. Just. A few days, a few days right. of stay until you find the right person to come in to be the minister I mean, the, or imam so, so or rabbi or whomever. Will Bode wrote a post for Volokh where he basically said that like the best that can be said for what the majority did is that they found the district court's analysis of the timing more credible than the Eleven Circuits. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe a fact dispute about exactly what right. went down. I have two reactions to that. The first is you can read both of these analyses, and I think any reader looking at these two analyses will find one to be far more compelling than the other, and it's not the district courts, um, right? That if you put them side by side, I don't know how an objective reader sees this as a plausible thing. But two, if that's what was going on, it should have been incumbent upon the majority to say that. Right, yeah. to say that we recognize that the 11th, especially in light of Justice Kagan's dissent, we recognize that the lower court, you know, said this. We disagree and For instead the find reason. the district court credible. Yeah, no, that's right. And that, look, they're supposed to give reason. Yes. Di- what makes it different from an act of power is supposed to be the reasons given and the power of the reasoning. So I agree with you there. And, and it's actually, I mean, I was teaching the shadow docket in Fed courts on Monday, and this is a perfect illustration of all that happens. But so the reason why I think this actually has one degree, one iota of relevance to our <laughs> podcast um, is because the headlines coming out of this are entirely obvious, right? Which is, you know, a Supreme Court that increasingly has said it's committed to religious freedom, right? CEG, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, it actually only cares about certain religious Certain religions. Oh, I see. It gets spun a certain way. Yeah, that, it gets spun yeah. as anti-Muslim, and I just and I think like I'm again. Which I'm does not, not sound right to me based on listen, what I've heard. Listen, I I don't think that it was a reflection of hostility to Islam by any of the justices. I do think it should have been clear to them that that's what it would look like, right? And that and that had it been the case that the only person available was a rabbi for a, you know, Southern Baptist on death row, right? Would they have reacted differently? I hope the answer is no, but like the public perception is the answer is yes. And I just don't know why it's in the interest of the Supreme Court to inflict that kind of wound on itself when all they had to do was leave the status quo intact. Alabama would still have been able to execute Mr. Ray. There would have been none of this dispute. No, the whole thing seems like a problem that's emerged into a kind of a bit of a firestorm that 
it kind of begins with the Alabama authorities. Like, what was? Well, there's also that. Yeah, like why not? Just, there's also that. There, there had to have been some person who was available right. the next week. And so apparently, Alabama's reaction to this has been no more religious efficiency of any kind in the execution chamber. All right, equality by taking away. Right, uh, right uh, uh, um, le- level down. Level down. Um, level down. So I, I just. The, All right, well, the, the Supreme Court often does things that surprise me. Um, it occasionally does things that disappoint me. It rarely does things that shock me. And this was that last category. Yeah, that's, that's weird. It's, it, I'm with you a little bit. So, um, sorry, so, sorry, I ran no, it for a long we, time. We turned it into an episode of First Tuesdays on the second Tuesday of the month. My so bad. I enjoyed it. But we still have one more. No, we, that was good. Have, I actually we, learned something there. We, we still have one more. We got one go. more. So we have another cert petition pending. This is the Hamidulin Doolin. Uh, Cert petition. So let me do a quick rundown of this. Irek Hamidulin is a Russian citizen and military veteran. I think he's in his 50s or something like that. Um, suffice to say that uh, he, he led his own kind of band of, of forces in the Afghanistan uh, theater that carried out an attack in 2009. They're, these guys were loosely under the Taliban banner. It's an illustration of the actual complexity of, of the organizational landscape of an organized armed groups over there. Uh, they carried out a uh, reasonably well-executed military ambush of U.S. and Afghan military forces in November 2009. But he was captured on the battlefield and, and uh, was subsequently brought to the United States and prosecuted uh, for domestic criminal offenses, uh, which, of course, presumes that he does not have, as, as the U.S. policy has long been, uh, he does not have combatants' immunity from civilian prosecution for his war-related actions. Uh, in other words, you're not a POW, you're not a legitimate participant in hostilities who's cloaked with immunity for things that are not war crimes. Um, no surprise, of course, that that would be the approach. There have been a number of prosecutions that have uh, been connected to the Taliban. I think of John Mark or Lynn. There's all, all sorts of examples of this, and certainly all the al-Qaeda cases. No one's been getting combatant immunity uh, and I'm not surprised by that at all, but uh, Habadulin is making an effort to show that the Fourth Circuit was wrong to reject his argument on this point and that the court should grant cert uh, and potentially at least opening the door to the possibility that he would get combatants immunity. So basically what he's arguing is this. He points out that the Army has a regulation that, that is sort of the, uh, the, the central training mechanism and set of rules governing the land force's use of detention, Army Regulation 190-8. Uh, it has a provision, I think it's 1-6, that spells out all the particulars of, hey, here's how you do it. If you get detainees, um, you're going you're gonna to have a screening process because you got to figure out who's a civilian, who's a POW, who's not who they said they were, all these different possibilities. And we use tribunals consisting of three officers. These do not have to be lawyers of any, of any kind. This, this is sort of just standard stuff. So say in the Persian Gulf War, we use the, uh, the tribunal process to screen through these endless number of of, of Iraqis who ended up in coalition custody, uh, some of whom were Iraqi army, but many of whom were Iraqi civilians. And this is sort of your sorting mechanism. It's expressly designed as, as an implementation that fulfills Geneva Convention obligations under the third Geneva Convention for international armed conflicts, where uh, Article 5 of the third Geneva Convention says, if in the event that a, a captive has committed a belligerent act, in that event, if there's a doubt that they qualify for POW status, uh, you, you treat them as a POW, which means immunity, so no drumhead proceedings and executions, please, until such time as a competent tribunal can decide the question. So Hamidullin says, there's a doubt. Where's my tribunal? I didn't get a three-officer panel. Instead, President Bush, back in 2002, issued an order that conclusively or purported to conclusively decide that no al-Qaeda or Taliban fighters are going to get this status. And it's been wholesale de- determined for all of us ever since. And he says that that's not right. And the Army regulation applies and should simply govern in all settings. So, Steve, I think he's he's plainly wrong, although, of course, I love the mm. topic. I think it's super interesting to wrestle with the, the way that LOAC fits together with the Army reg and, and, and the uh, interesting attempt to try to turn it into sort of a, even if I lose on LOAC, hey, maybe there's just a, a different and broader American common law rule, which I don't think exists, but I commend it for trying. Um, here are the things I think about this. One, it is crystal clear that there is no international law obligation to which the United States is bound, at least, uh, in the law of armed conflict that requires competent tribunals, let alone actually giving combatant immunity and POW status to uh, to forces involved in a, non, in, in a non-international 
armed conflict. Um, the rule for POW status and combatant immunity as a matter of international law when it's required, that's for international armed conflict only as far as the United States is concerned. Um, and this unquestionably, in my view, was a non-international armed conflict at the time of the actions in question here. If you go back to 2001, the fall of 2001 into 2002, different question. Uh, in 2009, whatever IAC status this conflict once had is long since gone, in my opinion. And I think that's also the opinion, basically, of all the forces fighting there. I think it's the Red Cross opinion. I think it's, I think it's you know, by far the majority view. Um, the uh, fact that Article 198 does have just broad language, just referring to how if you have captives, we're going to use this process, that's interesting, and it raises the possibility that the United States, if you thought that Army Regulation 190-8 is best read to literally mean a conscious choice to go broader than international law requires, th that would be fine if that's the best reading. Um, but then you'd also have to contend with the fact that Later in time, the president of the United States, as the commander in chief and the head of the executive branch, considered the specific question as applied to these particular uh, fact patterns and reached a different uh, conclusion. So unless you thought that somehow the Army regulation nonetheless controlled executive branch policy, I don't, I don't see how that could possibly work. Um, there's an there's a underlying claim that in order for this all not to be fruitless anyways, uh, there has to be at least some prospect he might actually get. Mm -hmm. combatant immunity from such a tribunal. And he says, the reason why it doesn't have to come out the other way is you should make all the analyses, there's four analytical questions, should all be examined individually. I think that's actually wrong. It's okay. wrong under Ar Army Regulation 190-8. It's wrong under the Geneva Convention. Yes, there are individual elements too, but there also are clearly, and, and everyone who works in this area, I think, recognizes there are collective elements as well. Uh, and unless, unless there's reason to think and thus create doubt about the uh, collective ability of the group to which he's assimilated uh, to show that it obeys the laws of war. This whole thing's a non-starter. Um, and, and the suggestion at the end that, well, maybe in, apart from all that, there's just a broader common law criminal defense of combatant immunity that's intentionally broader than the international law rule. I, I just don't see the evidence that such a thing exists. So I think it's super interesting, great vehicle for rehearsing these deals, but I just don't think that search should be granted because I don't think the Fourth Circuit got it wrong. So what do you do with Judge King's dissent? I mean, right, so Judge King dissented below, um, and his basic objection was a procedural one, right, that we were sort of assuming the outcome of a process that he, to which he thought Hamid Dolan was entitled. Right, but but that requires, this is the Army Regulation 1A-8, yeah. three-officer well, panel. And the, right, and the GC3 Article 5. Well, right, but see, GC3 unquestionably doesn't apply here. So, so but, there's the only way this is relevant is purely as a question of U.S. Uh, policy implemented in the Army reg right. to extend beyond that. But then you have to say that that controls over President Bush's decision in 2002 as commander-in-chief. I don't I'll see in what universe the Army reg could could supersede that or that President Bush would be disabled from making that determination. No, 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 but wouldn't you need – I mean, but so, – so I, I mean, just – when I, what when I what you said before, I mean, President Bush made that determination across a whole category of combatants, right? right. There was no across specific the Taliban collectively. Right. There was no specific finding in Hamadullin's case, right? And so, is there? Well, any there's no. It was it was made collectively for the entire organized armed group right. against which we were fighting because the collective element of the inquiry. I, I didn't say what the inquiry was. There's there's four conditions in Article Four A Two of the Third Geneva Convention. You have to bear arms openly. You have to wear a fixed insignia visible to distance. And you can see how yeah. there's an individual aspect of that. You have to have a your, your organization has to have a command hierarchy with someone responsible. And and the point of that is the fourth condition: the organization's got to comply with the laws of armed conflict. Uh, that's where President Bush, among other reasons, said, "Look, that the Taliban, the, the Taliban don't." do that, that that's not something they would claim they do. There's no way, no matter what one individual within the group may have done, collectively the group is not going to qualify. Therefore, there can't be individual cases of doubt that maybe that guy somehow does get POW status. I think that's the problem here. I think that was uh, the, the resolution of it. And the Army reg, first of all, the, the most that could happen here would be saying, all right, um, take, take a little bit of time and do that. Um, but I just don't see how it can override the president's determination. I, I certainly share your skepticism of the likelihood of Sir Grant. I do think that there's an interesting bucket of issues here, right, that sort of, you know, segues nicely to our next, our next piece, but also that I think highlights just how little meaningful stuff 
the Supreme Court has said about post 9-11 detention. Well, it's it's certainly interesting. And I, I for one, share your interest in it. I just think <laughs> the court should uh, leave it where it is. <clears throat> uh, but, we, you know, we may get some other detainee cases, as you hinted at a moment ago. So uh, as we touch on from time to time on the show, we've got this cluster of Islamic State fighters detained in Syria by uh, Syrian Democratic forces. There's no reason on earth to think that they'll just keep detaining them forever as if they'll just continue holding their own territory and post-American withdrawal, nothing will change for them. Sooner or later, they're going to let these guys go. And these, this is a large group that actually includes women and children as well, but the male, the male fighters who are the main object of the detention, we're talking about a large cluster of uh, people from uh, you know, Western passport holders, a lot of Europeans. Um, and there has been off and on a, a diplomatic push by the United States in particular to try to get these European countries to take back their former residents and citizens uh, and deal with them under their laws and deal with them so that they can be securely detained into the future if, if that's appropriate. Um, the United States at this point, I don't believe, has any citizens there. We had one and we took him back. Right. One was Christopher Clark. We took him back. He's in Houston. He's being prosecuted. Um, the rumor is that there's sort of a deal in the works where the United States, so Le Monde uh, reported in French, so I had to, uh, <laughs> I actually used Google Translate to make sure that what I'd read on Twitter was, was legit. Um, and it's saying, look, there's at least a discussion about a, a sort of a massive resolution to this where the United States will provide the logistics to safely grab these people and then do transitory detention, sending them off to their countries of, of citizenship in Europe. But it's not at all clear that the countries in Europe are going to go, go along with this. And then there's separately a line of, of rumors that the United States is going to take upwards of 40 of the, of the most serious cases and take them to Gitmo to ensure continued military detention. And so the question arises, uh, you know, what, what would be the consequences of doing that? And uh, I, I can imagine, but I will not try to speak for you, that you don't think this is a good idea. I think it's a terrible idea. All right, so why? Uh, unpack it. So, so, I mean, this is we're previewing a forthcoming blog post by Bobby Chesney and Steve Vladek. Yeah, we're supposed to get to work on that. Yeah, maybe. We, can we just transcribe the next, like, five well, minutes of the might. podcast? Alex, get on that. All right, so short version. <laughs> I'll get right on top of that, Rose. Um, <laughs> short, short version. I, I see three principal problems with moving the detainees. And let me go in sort of decreasing order of, of seriousness. Big serious problem number one is you will necessarily force the critical legal question that the government has thus far successfully avoided having a court resolve, to wit, does the 2001 authorization for the use of military force as modified by, the, by Section 1021 of the Fiscal Year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act authorize the detention of members of ISIS? Right. Wholly apart and distinct from any affiliation with Al-Qaeda. So going back to the Obama administration, uh, they're not at the very outset of its use of force against the Islamic State, but eventually they began saying, well, Islamic State, it's a, it was an al-Qaeda-associated force. The fact that it then broke up with core al-Qaeda doesn't change that and take it out of the AMF, at least as long as it continues to remain engaged in belligerent acts against the United States. So therefore, it's still covered by the one AMF. Um, we've got a lot of practice, a lot of bombs dropped under the color of that legal interpretation. But not a single judicial decision. Right, because we don't have any long-term Islamic State detainees. And the only one was Dovey Mattis. Got it. We got it in there. The only one was Dovey Mattis. <laughs> Drink. And that, and that one nearly was going to get there. Yeah. Well, that one, some of us believe that one should have gotten there. And and ultimately, the courts, you know, that one got mooted. All right. So, so now this could be, so this would absolutely unquestionably put that question right. front and center in front of the federal courts. In, in a properly justiciable dispute. Absolutely. And so, there's, there's no question. So significant potential for, so from the government's perspective, significant litigation risk. Now, you and I, we've gone over this about 400 times. We yep. have slightly different views yep. on just how strong the government's yep. case is. I think they're better off in terms of their merits prospects. I think, you know, probably they'd win. You're not so sure. I, I think I think it's better than even that the government wins, but I'm not sure that's a risk you want. You know, better than even isn't exactly a risk. I it isn't necessarily the the line I'd want. Now that's that's us talking about our views on whether while there's clearly the current level of hostilities going on, right. whether we've got an Islamic State, United States, AMF nexus. Um, if the United States is at the very same time or while that litigation gets underway, fully withdrawing its forces, as the president says he wants to do, from Syria. Now, obviously, he doesn't. it's not a unitary executive currently, and there's uh, others with different views, including the National Security Advisor. But um, assuming we actually did pull out entirely and uh, assuming that the pace of operations specific to the Islamic State became very episodic. You're going to have a—right. Right, so you're going to have a real sort of challenge, right, without— 
what the government has in the context of al-Qaeda, which is a Supreme Court decision. Right. So in other words, you could conclude that while the fighting was hot, yes, the Islamic State was in the scope of the AMF, but you have this secondary issue, which also would then be litigated. And otherwise, it wouldn't be. But in the, if they bring them to Gitmo, it will be. Then you'd have the secondary issue of whether they're still right. in armed conflict underway. So I said three problems, right? So, so one was the pure detention question. Two is the sort of unraveling authority problem. Mm-hmm. And then three is the optics and the baggage, right? I mean, Guantanamo's at 40 detainees today. There hasn't been a new de- – not counting the awkward case of General Baker, there hasn't been a new <laughs> detainee sent to Guantanamo since 2008, um, and there's a right. reason why across three administrations there's been no new detainees sent to Guantanamo. It's because there's so – I think it's it's so politically fraught in the sense that like there's – you know, there are there are lots of folks who will never think that, Guanta- that detention at Guantanamo is legitimate. Um, there are folks who are still deeply worried about the conditions of confinement at Guantanamo, um, right? That there's just – there's baggage surrounding Guantanamo that would not necessarily attach to any other U.S. military detention operation anywhere else in the world. So – I I completely agree that there is this sort of sunk cost set of impressions that are not going to change that brings that domestic political, but especially diplomatic frictions. No question that's right. I think think it's kind of silly at a certain level because there's no question in my mind that these people from a human rights perspective be way better off at Guantanamo than they are where they currently are or many other places they might end up. That may be true, but the problem is is that the the question is not like, you know, what's better for them, right? Because they're not currently in U.S. custody, right? The, like, you know, we, we'd be crossing a pretty important Rubicon by taking them into U.S. custody. I know, but you said a moment ago that yeah. there's, a, there's a perception out there yeah. that the conditions are bad. This would be a big improvement, a much, much better circumstance for them. I'm not saying that makes it right or the wise thing to do, but there's an illogic to some of the, uh, the thinking. Now, what's interesting is, um, given the uh, well-settled availability of habeas and what that represents at Gitmo, um, there's this other question of like, well, if you're going to take them into U.S. custody because no one else will, if you're going to provide that global public good, if you stipulate these are people that you do want to detain, um, and, and, there's, and the SDF is getting out of the business, if one thinks it was okay for the SDF to be holding them to begin with and not some great travesty, then you might think, well, it can't be can't be worse for the U.S. to be holding them in better conditions. But why do it at Gitmo? Why not just bring them into the United States? That's the thing. And they, so um, I mean, because legally, Steve, do you do you lose not anything? Covered, no, and they're not covered by. I mean, well, if you're the government, if the if you're the government, you do, right? I mean, if the government, you lose the ability to argue that there's a question about the extent to which they're protected by various constitutional provisions. Yeah, don't, if you're voluntarily I, I bring them on the U.S. Same soil, don't you think that that boat has sailed from Guantanamo? I, as, a, the I, as a practical matter, I do. Yeah. Um, as a matter of judicial precedent, I mean, we're going to see, you know, there's a, the D.C. Circuit has this Kasim case that we really haven't talked that much about, where I think we're going to have some interesting clarification about exactly what the yeah. court has and hasn't said about the Constitution's yeah. applicability. It, but can I just say, it's ridiculous that it's been, you know, 16, well, 17 years yes, now, that's and true. we don't have a clear answer to the question of exactly which elements of criminal procedure constitutionally Like, does speaking, the Sixth Amendment apply? Right, but, and does it apply exactly the same? And this leads to, and this leads to one more point about Guantanamo, which is, this is not your father's D.C. Circuit, right? I mean, the the D.C. Circuit today compared to the D.C. Circuit that was deciding the core al-Qaeda Taliban Guantanamo cases circa 2009-2010 is radically different and I think much more likely to be skeptical of the government than the court that confronted those early on cases. ISIS would at least give these judges a sufficient basis to distinguish those earlier decisions without feeling like they were necessarily bound by them. On the other hand, to flip that around, it would also be a fact pattern that has a lot more current relevance in terms of the uh, the degree to which we should be concerned. Um, I'll throw out one more thing, which is that Congress, for its part, has made Guantanamo especially unattractive by making it uniquely right. it's the hotel, subject. It's the Hotel, it's the hotel California. Yeah, uniquely subject to constraints that make it extremely hard for the executive branch to make policy decisions about whether and when to transfer detainees out, out of there. Right. So once you touch it, you're totally stuck there with all the problems it entails. So why would you ever bring anyone we should, there? We should actually make this point in the post, right? That the government, by holding these guys anywhere else in the world, would maintain the flexibility to move them for any purpose whatsoever. Yep. Whereas the second they go to Guantanamo, they fall within the codicils of the various um, restrictions in yeah. the NDAAs. Yeah, yeah. All right. Should we go into lightning round and finish off everything else? Sure. Lightning round. Right, lightning round. I, I have to note the incredible turn of events in the case of Adam Yilmaz. Yilmaz is a Turkish citizen who was living in Germany um, about 10 years ago, was arrested as part of a small cell, was planning to kill Americans through bombings in Germany, including at Rammstein. Um, 
he was, as I understand it, they got to the 15th day of the trial when he declared himself, quote, bored and decided he <laughs> wanted to tell the whole story and own it all. Um, this is a very bad and dangerous guy. Uh, the United States, meanwhile, had secured a sealed indictment, which was recently unsealed, alleging that uh, Yilmaz was part of a splinter group from the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, the Islamic Jihad Union. IJU was basically the part of IMU that was especially focused on the Al-Qaeda vision of attacking the far enemy. Um, and they're saying that he was involved in various activities in Afghanistan, including uh, training a man who committed a 2008 suicide bombing that then killed two, uh, two U.S. soldiers. Uh, so uh, a variety of charges that are rooted in his activities in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. Um, he got from the Germans for having a confessed involvement in bomb plots. They gave him 11 years. And he got time served. And so his time was up this year. We had an extradition request pending with them. And the Germans declined to extradite him, saying double jeopardy. Now, two pro- and they sent him to Turkey instead. Now, more on that in a moment. I think there's two problems with this. Uh, there's three problems, really. One is the U.S., U.S. officials are saying that there were some procedural irregularities where representations we were sending diplomatically to make our case were not conveyed to the court. Maybe we screwed that up. Maybe it didn't happen. Maybe they screwed it up. That's ridiculous, though, in a case of this magnitude. Uh, Secondly, double jeopardy, first and foremost, seems odd to my ears because, of course, in the U.S. federal system, we're accustomed to the separate sovereigns doctrine, which says that even if it's the same fact pattern, if it's different sovereigns laws that were violated, the the enforcement by the one on that fact pattern doesn't preclude enforcement by the other. But I gather gather that maybe in the extradition setting, as a matter of how the treaty is interpreted, that's not always the case. But here's the thing. He was prosecuted in Germany for this Germany-based plot. That's not what the United States is trying to prosecute him for. On its face, this seems clearly not to be a double jeopardy scenario. If I'm wrong about the underlying facts, then maybe it's not so egregious. But otherwise, this just seems nuts and frankly, a pretty ugly slap in the face for the Germans not to have extradited him to us, or at least not to have had a more thorough proceeding to get to the bottom of this. Uh, The Turks did take the guy into custody on arrival in Istanbul, uh, and we have issued a red notice through Interpol, uh, you know, signaling that we're going to be seeking his extradition. So let's hope he ends up here uh, anyways. We'll see. But that's a, it's just a very unfortunate state of affairs. I agree. But I'll just say I, I, there's, a, there's a line I like to use whenever, whenever I get sort of inquiries about extradition cases. Um, that extradition really is about 90% political and 10% legal. Um, and so, you know, w- without condoning any of the behavior, it, it is not uncommon to have awkward political um, – yeah. Basically, to to come up with with thinly veiled legal pretext for what are really political calculations, which to me, if that's right, actually makes it even worse. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, as I, between the I, United again, States and Germany, that, that makes it even worse. Well, listen, I mean, I, far be it for me to suggest that like um, we're doing a lot right now that's good for our foreign relations with some of our most important foreign allies. Yeah, well, you know, the the, the shamefulness of things that Trump does in foreign affairs. Right. No, the, the, idea that you would, right. the idea that this would possibly no no you know, impact the terrorism. Yeah. All right. Uh, Super lightning round now. I'll just note that National <laughs> DOJ National Security Division uh, announced uh, simultaneous arrest in New York at JFK Airport and in Texas. Uh, these two guys, it seems this is clearly the same case, though they don't name each other as such. Two guys who met online in a chat room, uh, more or less expressing their joint admiration for Lashkar-e Taiba. This is the despicable terrorist organization in Pakistan responsible for the Mumbai attacks in 2008, among many other travesties. Uh, the one guy, uh, it, so the catch was one guy was already connected up with an undercover FBI officer. So the FBI got to mantra what then took place. Um, you have one guy wanting to go over there to, to become, he hoped, an executioner. He wanted to get involved in beheadings. And then the other guy facilitating his travel. So they've both been rolled up and will face material support charges. Good job, FBI. Uh, and then, Steve, lastly, we were going to talk Project Raven, but I think we should actually j- – we'll just refer people. I've got a long and detailed post at Lawfare. Do you want to give people sort of the nutshell version and maybe, yeah. maybe we'll go into more detail next week? Okay, so how about this? Um, what should the rules be and what are the rules? Maybe do that in reverse order. What are the rules and what should they be when you have uh, former employees of the U.S. intelligence community who take on work as contractors or employees working for a foreign intelligence service – Project Raven was a project like this that was, you know, it was licensed by the State Department in a way I'll explain in a moment uh, to assist the UAE as it was establishing uh, back in 2012 or so. It's uh, newly uh, 
newly refined SIGINT enterprise. SIGINT, these former NSA employees hired to go advise them, especially on cyber matters. And they have this operational role. Uh, we'd known about this going back to 2012. There's, a, there's an Ellen Nakashima article in the Washington Post that talks about how a, a company in Baltimore called CyberPoint um, had, a, had a license to provide uh, consulting and advising services that they characterize as defensive in nature, so defend our networks, that sort of thing. Um, and then later on, there started to be some questions about, was that same company, was this contract even perhaps related to hacking team, the, the Italian uh, sort of malware for hire company that did a lot of uh, unsavory regimes and uh, semi-unsavory regimes were uh, using to track dissidents or to, to surveil dissidents. And then comes the big Reuters uh, uh, blockbuster by, by Chris Bing and, and Joel Shackman uh, describing how, look, they've, they've spoken now to some of these Americans, and one, one by name was the big source for the story, describing how they gradually came to realize that the enterprise they were supporting was surveilling dissidents, surprise, surprise, and also not that surprising, surveilling sometimes Americans. And so the question, this set off a sort of a firestorm of, wait, what's legal here? What, what should be legal? The uh, military version of all this is when American companies want to provide defense articles or defense services to foreign powers. And of course, we've long had the Arms Export Control Act and the accompanying uh, regulations, the International uh, Traffic and I forget what I forget what ITAR stands for. Traffic and Arms Regulation, something like that. Uh, this licensing scheme, where you go to the State Department, and say, "Hey, I want to sell this kind of munition to the UAE," um, and if you get the right kind of safeguards and representations in place, and the stars otherwise aligned with U.S. interests, State Department will or will not license you to carry out that sale. Interesting thing one: when do similar services that are maybe not quite defense services, when do intelligence services, intelligence advising, uh, when do they fall into the scope of this? And for that matter, where do, where do various forms of cyber activity, cyber know-how, cyber means and methods, that maybe if cybercom's doing them, you're tempted to call them cyber weapons. But if NSA's doing it, it's, you know, they're hacking tools or they're, they're just, you know, tools, techniques and procedures. And when does just general know-how, you know, knowing what the smart way to go about luring someone through social engineering to opening a file they shouldn't. When do these things even come within the Arms Export Control Act? I think there's actually some interesting interpretive questions there. In this case, I guess maybe in an excess of caution, or maybe because it's pretty clear to those who administer the system and who work at some of these agencies, they had gotten a license. And that introduces the possibility that, well, maybe we've got a good licensing system up front, but uh, we don't really have a back-end monitoring mechanism that's tailored to this particular fact pattern, um, and maybe we should. And you might even go further and say, well, why do we allow it at all? Maybe we should ban it. I mean, at least in the context of lobbying and things like that, we put some people, based on their job they just had, we sometimes put them in the penalty box for three years before they can go to you know, something that's maybe a little bit inconsistent with the interest of their prior employer. We do that with some elected officials, probably not enough. Um, in the military context, we have had for two centuries plus uh, the uh, 50 U.S. Code, Section 959, which says three-year felony to enlist in the service of a foreign prince or, or other sovereign, mm -hmm. uh, although I don't think we enforce that much, No, uh, to put it mildly. So these, these kinds of conversations are now in the air about the, uh, the manifold and frequently resorted to and often very remunerative post-IC employment uh, uh, opportunities for overseas employment, which a lot of which is good for the United States, I want to add. This gives us, uh, you know, deeper ties, put some of our people in places where they can be useful in terms of sharing information back, perhaps. But there's no question there's a lot of risk here. And the Project Raven story, which I write about at some length at Lawfare, if you want to go deeper on that, uh, is, is, I think, an important sort of uh, moment for thinking about not civ-mill relations, but civ-intel relations. Yes, yeah. and, and, and how they've declined dramatically during this administration. Well, that's certainly the the, the wild card. All right. Um, is that enough lightning? That's enough lightning. Um, we the turn to... serious stuff is over. But now, now, there's a rumor out there that you and Heather have started watching True Detective. All right. So you, you beat me up pretty good about not watching True Detective or any other show that you like, which, <laughs> is, which is true, uh, with the exception of Game of Thrones. I've just been, you know, ever since Game of Thrones went off the air, you and I have not been watching the same stuff and our frivolity has suffered. Oh, it's coming back. I know. Winter's, winter is... 
winter's not only coming, winter's here. It is nigh. So, uh, Heather and I decided we'd start watching True Detective Season 3. So, uh, no spoilers, please, online. We are up to the second episode, <laughs> but that's pretty good for us. It's a miracle we're watching any TV at night. I'm excited. The kids were driving around. I'm impressed. Well, I can't wait. We're gonna, my goal is to be there for you when the finale happens. Two weeks. you got to hustle. I, I will say this. Um, Herschel Ali and, uh, and Stephen Dorff, wow. I mean, the acting right? is as advertised. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, as advertised by me. Yes, indeed. So, um, I also, before we get to what you want to talk about in the frivolity, I just want to point out, Karen and I went to a concert on Saturday. You did? Did, we you, did. Go, did you go to Fleetwood Mac? We went to Fleetwood Mac. How was it? It was it was good. It was um I have this experience with the Indigo Girls, which is a group I've loved forever that is still so fun live, but that is not necessarily physically capable of that which they were physically capable of, say. I mean like the live version of Landslide of Landslide that everybody yeah. loves yeah. is twenty two years old. Yeah. So, you know, um, it was fun, right? I mean, Mick Fleetwood is always hilarious. I heard Lindsey Buckingham's not with the group anymore. Lindsey's not with the group. Um, I mean, they got the, they got. Oh, I can't believe, I don't remember his name. Tom Petty's Tom awesome Petty's guitarist. guitarist. Yeah, he was awesome. Shame on me. He was fantastic. Um, and indeed, I actually thought the highlight of the entire show was in the encore when they covered Free Fallen. Oh, I bet that was. It great. was really fantastic. Uh, how did Stevie Nicks sound? For the most part, good. Um, I would say that her range is closer to mine these days than than it used to be. Yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, still warbly. We should all be so lucky that yeah, at right? seventy. I mean, she's seventy, right? I mean, that at seventy we sound like Stevie Nicks. Well, there will be a podcast many decades from now that we'll find out about that. episode uh, four thousand seven hundred. Christine McVie sound good. Yep, Christine yeah. sounded good. Um, so you know the they didn't play. They played landslide. Obviously, they played all the obvious like Uber hits from the seventies. They did not play my favorite Fleetwood Mac song, which is Silver Springs, which I think might have been a, a, ra- a concession to, to range constraints. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did they play uh, The Chain? Of course. Yeah, that's good. So, um, it was, and, and not only that, Bobby, we're going to another concert tomorrow. What? Two who and five days. I don't, it's like we're normal adults who don't have two young kids that take up all of our time. Um, tomorrow night, we're going to go see James Taylor with Bonnie Raitt. Wait, James Taylor's here? Tomorrow night. Oh, interesting. I wonder if I can maybe finagle my way into that. You probably to, can. I used and, to love. And Thursday's Valentine's Day. So I, um, you know. Wig, wig. When, you know how it is with little kids. Uh, lots of singing to your kids. Uh-huh. And I sang a lot of James Taylor songs to my uh, my kids. Uh, something in the way she moves being mm-hmm. the particular favorite. Oh, and Sweet Baby James. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's the best, you know, lullaby. Well, I went to a concert on Friday night. Oh, look at us. So uh, I went to Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Mm. Um, this is a band I've seen several times, but not in this century. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I saw it several times in the 90s. Uh, okay. I mean, they're, they're phenomenal musicians. Uh they, uh, of course, played Bittersweet and Brokenhearted Savior and Circle, which are sort of like the most well-known ones. I was really disappointed they didn't play as much as I wanted to off of Stratagem. And then they played a whole bunch of stuff that I frankly hadn't heard before because I just haven't heard the other albums. It was okay. Um, there was not a lot of energy in the crowd, so it was not nearly as good as the Lucas Nelson show I saw at ACL uh, you know, a month before that. All right. Speaking and, and, of and, live and, and, and Thursday night, right? And Thursday night, you you had a, an excellent interview t- conversation with Sally Yates. Oh yeah, I meant to say congratulations on the Texas Law Review and ACS Symposium that you curated, and thanks for giving me that role. Where yeah. uh, is true? We had a we had a private went really off the record because we didn't ever say it, and p- some people were tweeting things about it. Um, and there's some pictures, but it was unrecorded. I think it was unrecorded. Uh, me, me interviewing Sally Yates, who was tremendously impressive. I especially enjoyed talking about domestic terrorism in the 1990s when she was a prosecutor in Atlanta, the U.S. Attorney. The Olympic uh, Park bombing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Eric Rudolph, that sort of thing. Yeah. We All also, right. I mean, um, I had, I actually had a really fun conversation. So Barb McQuaid, um, who's now a professor at at Michigan and 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 Hi, self-proclaimed Barb. one of our one of our fans, Barb. This is a, a shout out to you. Um, so Barb was the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan during the Abdul Muttalib case, um, and I oh, teach, wow. yeah, yeah. Um, I teach the Judge Edmonds the ruling on the on the the Miranda exception, right? The Quarles public safety exception oh, yeah. as applied yeah, in that yeah. case. And I was asking Barb, I was like, you know, I said, um, you have a case with such, um, you know, where you have so much physical evidence, you know, to, why provoke the judicial ruling? Uh, I won't, I won't, I didn't ask Barb if I could share her answer, right. so I won't you say it publicly. Tell me offline. But it was fascinating. Here. And she's fascinating and she's awesome. And Barb, we really appreciate your support and all the work you're doing. And, and I should add, you know, just in case anyone's listening to this thing like, oh, so you had all these sort of, you know, Democratic officials. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, Steve, 
we've had a great keynote lunch and interview with Alberto Gonzalez, our former attorney general, and that was a that was a good uh, event as well. So there was actually, I think the event was to be commended for having a lot of, there were Republicans and Democrats all there. Um, Mets fans, Yankee fans. There were Mets fans and Yankee fans, Spurs and Warriors. <laughs> um, so we were talking a moment, ago about, a moment ago about live music. Let me just say a few things about the Grammys, because at my house, the Chesney family, we watch award shows. We love them. Love live performance of any kind and, and love seeing artists when, especially in front of their peers, it's interesting, right? It's, a, it's an environment that might take someone who doesn't get anxious in other circumstances, maybe make them a little anxious. So here's what I thought was particularly good and a few things I didn't think were good in the live performances. Uh, I love the Dolly Parton tribute. It's crazy that Dolly Parton can still sing so well. Um, and her with Miley Cyrus uh, is awesome. Every time that happens, that's Miley Cyrus is, is like her goddaughter. Um, they sang Jolene together, and it was every bit as good as, as it should have been. Um, they had a whole rotating set of people coming in to sing with her during that tribute. I got to say, I don't know what was up with Katy Perry. I used to really like Katy Perry. I'm not so sure anymore. Left, she, left Shark. Left Shark got her. They, they could have used more more Left Shark on that one. Uh, Janelle Monet was like Prince reborn and channeling uh, Prince doing Make Me Feel. It was unbelievable. It was a really cool choreography. It was really, really well performed by her. So I missed the Grammys because I was watching True Detective. Um, <laughs> but but I do think, I mean, I've said this before, I do think that there's a marked difference between um, award shows that where, where the recipients are of an industry that is used to performing live yeah. and award shows in industries that are not used to performing live. Yeah, and the I Tonys are good. The Tonys are good. Yeah. The Grammys are good. The Oscars and the Golden Globes. Not so much. I'll tell you. I'll tell you who else is good. Alicia Keys. Yeah, so oh she, my gosh. So she hosted. I mean, come on. She hosted, which was all cool and interesting, and it was it was an unconventional kind of you know very laid back style of hosting that I really liked. But of course, the real action was when she you know performed herself, and and the best part of that was when she got between two pianos, and just played them simultaneously. And, yeah, and and it did this medley of various songs that she respects the songwriting on. It, that was neat. Um, it got panned by some, but I don't understand why. I thought Shawn Mendes duetting with Miley Cyrus uh, on In My Blood, uh-huh. which is, you know, not my favorite song in the world, but like both of them, A-plus, grade A voices. Mm-hmm. It was it was wonderful, I thought. Um, Lady Gaga, I was a little disappointed with the way she, she did an interpretation of Shallow that was very consciously trying to be distant from the movie character's right. interpretation right. of it. Um, it felt a little forced and awkward. Um, it felt a little, I think the word for it, the artistic word for it, is it felt mannered. Yeah, um, but I, I, I'm willing to forgive Gaga all manner of sins. Oh, no, I think she's awesome. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm calling it, calling it like I saw it. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't a very appealing performance of it. Although I do think there's an EGOT, right? She's, she's a future EGOT recipient. Oh, that could be. Uh, Bradley Cooper as well, I guess. He was at the Baptist, so couldn't pick up his we, we, just need, we just need some Tonys. Um, Last, I'll say this. I was most looking forward to Post Malone playing with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And that was where I was most disappointed, um, in part because of just the the lack of creativity to find something that they could really blend together. Mm. It didn't feel like they really tried very hard on that. And the sound mix, unlike almost every other performance we saw, the sound mix was terrible. Mm. I mean, you really couldn't appreciate any of what makes the Red Hots the Red Hots. Um, so big thumbs down to that, which was a disappointment. And that's all I've got to say about the Grammys. <laughs> uh, another fine year for the recording industry. Indeed. Um, have you seen any movies? That, no. That was by far, you know, Seriously. more pop culture engagement for me in one weekend than, than I normally do. I mean, listen, Karen and I, you know, this is like, this is going to be half of our concerts for the year in five days. Blow it out. Little kids, man. What can you do? Nothing. All right. So uh, we'll be back next this time next week. Maybe with some interesting developments on the Supreme Court front. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, happy birthday, President Lincoln. Right? 100 oh. and, uh, 110 or oh, 210 I years to ago say, today. Like, my, my favorite thing, my pet peeve. I'm not a fan of celebrating President's Day as such. Yeah. We should celebrate Washington's birthday. And we should celebrate Lincoln's birthday. No doubt there are some other President's birthdays that are worth noting. But the idea of glorifying the office as such, in my mind, is somewhat un-American. So happy birthday, President Washington. Happy birthday, President Lincoln. Down with President's Day. Down with President's Day. Which, by the way. Up with virtuous presidents. A, a, fed, a federal holiday that no one really celebrates except for the federal government. <laughs> right? The Supreme Court won't be like, we'll all be here on Monday, but the Supreme Court won't. <laughs> on that uplifting presidential note, uh, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, go share this podcast with your favorite former U.S. attorney. <laughs> Stay safe out there. Adios.